Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. What's with the new name, you ask? Well, nothing. It's just a slight improvement. The podcast is still brought to you by Wall Street Oasis, and nothing is changing. Just a way for people who aren't familiar with Wall Street Oasis to get a better idea of what this podcast is about. Moving up. Moving up in life. Moving up in your career. Just moving up everywhere. On today's episode, Fabrice Grinda, entrepreneur and early stage investor and so much more. Listen closely today because Fabrice has accomplished more than I believe to be humanly possible. His tips and tricks coming up. Quickly, the courses at Wall Street Oasis that I talk about every week that keep this podcast going, they really are incredible. They're the most comprehensive thing out there with thousands of crowdsourced questions and case studies, interview prep, modeling training, whether it's investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, or consulting. Check them out. I'm sure they will help you. Last week, I talked about LinkedIn messaging versus email. Similar topic this week as it's something I'm passionate about, cold emailing. V Junior 60 wrote a post asking for critique of his cold email. Well, it's your lucky day because I'm going to give you just that. Here's the deal. A cold email can be a super powerful tool when done correctly and sent to enough people. It is, after all, a numbers game because no matter how creative the subject line, how great the email, and how warm you can make the connection, some people just are not going to respond. That being said, here's my view of what makes for a solid cold email strategy. Keep it simple, make it personalized, don't bullshit, and be realistic. The subject line is very important. It needs to make the reader want to open the email. I sometimes put their first name in the subject. This gets to my next point. You need to personalize the email in some way. Make it specific to the person. Make them feel special. Sending a boilerplate email out to tons of people can work, but tailoring each one just slightly can greatly improve the odds you get a response. Next, don't bullshit. Keep it short, sweet, and to the point. Scrutinize every sentence and what its purpose is. If it's weak, kill it. Lastly, be realistic. Don't ask for an in-person meeting off the bat. That's weird. Hop on a call, build some rapport, and make your next ask. Keep pushing forward until you get an interview. 
It's like dating. You wouldn't go on a trip with someone before you even went on a date, and you wouldn't go on a date before you even had a conversation. We're humans. This is how we do things, so you just have to follow the process. I got my first job out of school in the middle of the financial crisis at J.P. Morgan by cold emailing. I got my next dream job at Houlihan Loki by cold emailing. I get most of the guests on this podcast from cold emailing. I even have an email conversation when I cold messaged Mitt Romney, but that's a story for another time. The point is the formula works. Be courageous, put yourself out there, and go get what you want. So V Junior 60, your email is solid. It's short, direct, relatable, because you discuss your uphill battle and realistic. A 15-minute call is something everyone can make time for. The only thing that's missing is the personalization. While the email is pretty good already, finding a way to make it specific to the person by naming their group, their school, a shared connection, whatever, will make it even stronger. That's it for me this week. User John Rocker. You won a free resume review or mentor session from leaving us a review on iTunes last week. The contest is over, but please keep leaving me those reviews. I truly appreciate it. Also, I'm on Twitter now, so friend me. I'll friend you back and we can start a conversation. I'm at A. Grodnik. Okay, Fabrice, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you... uh, Grew up in France. You went to Princeton. You started your career at McKinsey, and now you are a prolific angel investor. So let's start, obviously, in the beginning of your career, Princeton, McKinsey. Uh, what were you thinking then? Well, you know, I was really a nerd uh, in school in France, and as a result of that, I didn't quite fit in. I'd skipped a few grades. I was, like, into computers. I got my first PC when I was 10, like, back in 1984. I was building BBSs, like these bulletin board services where people would connect and buy modem before the internet was born. And I was also a really good student, so I was winning all the Olympiads, uh, and and didn't really feel feel like I fit in there. And Princeton, you know, there's more Nobel Prize winners on the campus of Princeton than in all of France. And I felt I would be in an environment that was intellectually stimulating and fun where I could actually pursue as many intellectual pursuits as I wanted. And so it, it just felt like home. And and also, if I close my eyes and imagine the perfect uh, college campus, it kind of looked like Princeton. So I uh, applied, I mean, by some miracle, get in, given that it got in, given that I didn't really speak English. I didn't know you could even prep for the SAT. I'm probably the lowest entry SAT score in the history of Princeton, given that my English was really terrible. Uh, but did get in and had an amazing time there and, and, and was really lucky in the sense that uh, Princeton started installing a T1 line, so high-speed internet in our rooms back in 1993 uh, at the very genesis of the internet. Now, it was pre-Mosaic, so it was really useful only for email and Gopher um, and use that. But once Mosaic was born, you know, essentially it was on the ground floor at the birth of the World Wide Web. And then, you know, started using Netscape, saw the Netscape IPO. Now, the interesting thing is that I actually knew going in, I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. Uh, my role models back in the 80s were Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And it was obvious to me that the the place where you could have the largest impact in the world um, was, was actually through technology and through harnessing the deflationary power of technology. And upon graduating Princeton, um, I actually considered going directly and building a startup or 
or joining a startup. But I was 21, uh, and even though I was really smart, you know, I finished off my class. Um, I, I I was still really shy and socially awkward, and not 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 socially well versed in any way, shape, or form. Didn't really, even though I built a little business in Princeton to pay for for college, which is exporting computer equipment from the U.S. to Europe. Um, it's not as though I build a real business, manage people, uh, or knew what it took. And and I'm like, you know, McKinsey, all the people that I thought were the most the smartest, the most ambitious, and the most interesting were went to McKinsey, and I felt it would be kind of like business school, except they pay you. And it was actually very useful. Um, I went to McKinsey and um, realized that you know being the smartest guy in the room actually is not all that relevant if you actually don't know how to communicate and work in teams and communicate in simple ways. And and what you learn in academia, um, the way you communicate is so profoundly different than the effective communications in business. You know, we have these long, flowery sentences and you build your argument over pages and pages and then you have a long, flowery conclusion. Whereas McKinsey is the opposite. You have the conclusion at the beginning. You have like one idea per page with three bullet points. You use a, a sentence in the present tense with seven words words and, and an action verb uh, to communicate it. And so effective communications are profoundly different. And then working in teams um, and being able to to, to explain uh, what it, whatever it has to say in simple terms that are understood by all. Um, and and then just a general oral and written communication skills. You know, I realized I was probably the least competent McKinsey Atlas because uh, uh, I didn't Raw IQ is clearly not enough, but I was not polished in any way, shape, or form. And by McKinsey investing in its people, and I was able to um, to take like public speaking classes and oral and written communication skills workshops, and also met the people and the friend, friends who became instrumental in both the person I became and friendships that I cherish and have to this day that are they're, they're profoundly meaningful to me. But the funny thing is I went there knowing I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. So it's not as though... Uh, I, I ever saw myself as a consultant or going down uh, that path, or and and you know I'd also considered uh, and I had an offer I think from Goldman at the time as well, um, but you know consulting felt like the right path. But two years in, I felt uh, I guess I was promoted to associate. And I'm like you know. I, I think I'm at the right time, at the right place, with the right skills. It's time for me to do something on my own. Now, the funny thing is um, I actually went to McKinsey thinking I would miss the bubble um, because I didn't expect it to last that long. It was reasonably obvious for many of the actors at the time uh, that it, it was a bubble. Uh, but lo and behold, um, I, I hadn't. And so it was time to, to move on and uh, to go into entrepreneurship. Yeah, and Fabrice, I really like how you were able to identify kind of a shortcoming. You were not great at working on teams and communicating, and you go take a job where you need to do just that. It's like being bad at math and going to get a job in investment banking and kind of you know becoming a more well-rounded person. The the thing is though, a lot of people take these jobs at you know Goldman or, or McKinsey with the idea of staying a short time and then going to become an entrepreneur. And this happened to me. I wanted to become an entrepreneur and then I got into investment banking and I kind of just got caught up in investment banking and, and, and I stayed longer than I would have thought in that field. Uh, how do you, how, how'd you kind of balance the two? Well, I can see why it's easy to to fall into that trap, and it's not really a trap. I mean, it it it's a highly prestigious job. Uh, frankly, you're working with amazing people, both on the client side and and in your teams. 
you the work is actually challenging and interesting and fun and um and it pays really well and it's also and and you're also highly regarded by society when when i left mckinsey my parents were like uh, horrified they're like you're 23 you've never failed at anything in your life you're in a position where you're making so much money uh and now you're going to do something where 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 you're you're most likely going to fail and it's going to crush you and, and you're going to lose everything you have um but i know i i i was always i i i was always a nerd i always loved technology it was obviously i needed to be in a field in technology and and it was also obviously i i like being a master of my own destiny and answering to myself and not others and then and, and so structure where there's real work with obligations that have seem somewhat artificial as opposed to being able to create what i want and also my I'm not necessarily creative in the sense that I'm not, you know, I'm not an artist, I'm not a musician, et cetera, but like creating something and nothing from a startup perspective is my form of creativity. So I, it, there is no chance for me to actually, I, I never considered one staying in McKinsey or in academia. I was a, I was a fantastic uh, uh, student and everyone wanted me to get a PhD and become a professor. And I realized that was not the path for me. So I, in a way I was lucky to know that, uh, those were were stepping stones on the path to entrepreneurship for me, but not not the place where I should stick along or stick stick around for a very, for a very long time. Yes, very lucky. A lot of people come on this podcast and they don't know what they want, what they wanted to do, and they just kind of you know fall into it. Uh, so that's very fortunate to identify what your passion is. Okay, so you worked at McKinsey for a few years. You still you're going to become a tech entrepreneur. How'd you do it? Well, the, the issue is, uh, I, especially at that time, I didn't have much creativity and I didn't have any brilliant ideas. And so I looked for all opportunities for inter intermediation, re-intermediation. Part of the issue is I, I decided to put constraints on myself because I was 23. I didn't feel I was going to be able to raise a, 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 a huge amount of money, nor – and a lot of the ideas – uh, or complex, right? If you want to build an Amazon, you need inventory management, supply chain, logistics, uh, supply chain management, and logistics, and, and and a lot of capital. Or if you want to be in fintech and build an E-Trade type business, same thing. You need a banking license, and and um, so nothing was resonating. But as an economist, I'd always uh, been impressed uh, by the beauty of of marketplaces and how they bring liquidity. Uh, and transparency to previously opaque markets. And uh, kind of randomly, I, I, I fell on the eBay website uh, in uh, in June of 1998. And I thought that was extraordinarily compelling. And as the, it, it, so that's before they went public. They went public uh, um, three or four months later. And um, as I realized it wasn't being done in Europe, I decided, you know what? I'm not at this point particularly creative, but like uh, I could take this concept and 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 adapt it and bring it to the European market. And so um, I built my first company called Auckland. So I sold everything I had. I left McKinsey. I moved back to France and uh, build build the first startup, um, which is in eBay for Southern Europe and for France. Which uh, it was an interesting journey because the. I didn't know what it what it would mean and what, what it would take to build a startup, and so um, decided to understand it from the from the ground up. So I actually did the front end coding. I hired the tech team. I built the product, and uh, and then it turns out that we were competing mostly against people who were like 
tech, uh, I guess, pr programmers who built sites and just put them out there. And I decided to be much more deliberate. Um, I copied the eBay org chart in terms of having like category managers, making sure that we had supply and demand in every single category by building a small team that would go to all the, I don't know, collectible coin owners and 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 fairs and all the stamp collectors and all the collectibles and the, and then we'd also have an electronics category and like we made sure we had in, inventory and supply uh and and then spent on marketing to get demand and so got the flywheel going of getting ever more buyers bringing more sellers and more sellers bringing ever more buyers and also a pretty compelling story and so um pretty rapidly became one of the largest uh, success stories in, in in the French internet ecosystem, uh, raised, uh, I guess, the biggest fundraise that had ever happened at the time at the highest valuation, um, ultimately ended up raising like 63 million in venture money. And I was like 24, you know, I had over 100 people working for me. Uh, we did like these super compelling TV ads and it was an extraordinary journey. I mean, um, it's like the cover of every magazine, the French Forbes at Fortune, et cetera. Um, the good news is, you know, because I was actually aware that all this was like a media and a bubble, it didn't completely go to my head, uh, especially since my wealth was ultimately virtual. The, the, the issue or not the issue, uh, the more the more interesting or challenging time came, OK, after the bubble burst and essentially lost everything. Um, and the company didn't do as well as I would have liked it to do for, for a variety of reasons, but largely because we I picked the wrong shareholders and I didn't I, I again like areas of inexperience. I didn't I never negotiated my shareholder. I I'd never seen a, a stock purchase agreement before. I didn't know what a drag was or a tag along or any of these things. And so when eBay came to buy us, uh, uh, it turns out that I could not force a sale, uh, even though it was the right time and the right price. And my majority shareholder made a sell to someone else, which was the wrong buyer, whose stock promptly fell 99.98% uh, and basically lost everything. And that led to a, a more interesting journey of soul searching, because while to me it was obvious I should have been an entrepreneur, um, while I was at Princeton and at McKinsey, it was way less obvious in 2001 post the bubble bursting, post having been um, at the top of the world, cover of every magazine, you know, presented a success, like all of a sudden everything's gone under and it's failed. Um, and and it feels like no more venture capital is available. Entrepreneurship is done. The internet is dead. What do I do then? And it took me um, a while of soul searching and came up with this mechanism for like making a large important decisions in life. And so I wrote myself this very long introspective email uh, assessing um, where I am, how IP I am, and what are the options available to me. And I and I laid out all the options. Uh, you know, go back to McKinsey, uh, go to business school, but that you know, that felt a little bit ridiculous given that like there were key studies were done at business school. Um, join a media company and run and run their their digital initiatives. I mean, a whole bunch of options. And and I didn't limit myself. And I wrote the pros and cons. And and then I shared it with my friends. And, and that process, and it was like a long 27-page email, um, which is, led me, and I, and I didn't reach a conclusion in that email to myself. It's just like putting it out there forces deliberate thinking and forces you to actually weigh the pros and cons and to put, and to really be clear crystal clear as to what the options are and based on that decided you know what i didn't create a startup because i wanted to make money or be successful i created it because i like creating something i have nothing i like being an entrepreneur and it's a more compelling path than anything else so even though the bubble of bursts and and it's probably not going to be financially successful uh let's go back and be an entrepreneur again and uh, and put it on the line because i there's nothing 
else I would rather be doing. It feels that uh, it, it, it's the right thing. And so it came down to finding an idea. And by the way, this is a process I've used many, many times in life before. Um, even when I was CEO of OLX and we had like 3,000 employees and like 300 million unique visitors a month and I felt something was wrong, I, I, I wrote myself an email to decide, you know, what the options were, what I should be doing and actually decided to leave OLX, post one of these emails, uh, even though, you know, presumably I was on top of the world. But, you know, we can get there later in, in this chat. Um uh, rather yeah, than I'd, like you know jump 15 years in the future well i'd love to get in more into that email uh, and writing down pros and cons what you like about things i did a very similar exercise in business school and you know came to the realization that investment banking and working for someone else wasn't right for me and entrepreneurship much more closely aligned with with what i wanted but like let's get into like actionable how you actually write that email so people listening to this podcast who are you know in a job they don't love or doing something that's maybe not quite right for them how do you structure that email Sure. So I'm actually going to uh, – I've already published the first email, the 2001 email by What to Do Next in Life on my blog. I'm, I'm actually going to publish the uh, both the email and then the interactions of around the email for the decision to leave OLX uh, back in 2012 on my blog in the coming few weeks or months. Um, the, the way I do it is, is first, like, first principles, taking a step back and thinking through how happy I am in – my personal life and or my professional life, like how satisfied I am. And for me, it's actually thinking through the nuance of that is, is, is not always easy because I'm actually a happy person. I, I'm, I'm always happy. And, and by, and, and maybe it's, you know, I'm lucky to be built grateful and optimistic, but by virtue of being always happy, it's, it's easy to get trapped in continuing to do whatever pattern of behavior I'm doing because, you know, things are really good and I feel really good. Uh, and so it's actually really understanding the nuance or is this as happy as I've ever been or could be? And, and is this as compelling, interesting as other things? So uh, first it's like an analysis of first principles of like what feels right or doesn't feel right. And do, do things feel right on in general? And, and I do it by both for my personal life and, and, my, and, and my professional life. Um, and then I try to list out all the options available to me. Um, the default path being one of them. So like continue doing what I'm doing, whatever that may be, I'd be saying that job. Um, and I try not to limit my thinking. I, I find that people limit optionality by putting boxes that where they don't need to be. And and and, and these restraints or constraints are often imposed by people rather than by, by society. And so in, in the last iteration of this, I was like, um, while I was still CEO of OLX, I was like, oh, maybe I should try to buy Craigslist uh, or try to run it, or maybe I should become a public intellectual and try to be a Malcolm Gladwell or Neil Ferguson, not, not that the U.S. really has public intellectuals in, in the proper sense of the word. Uh, or So it was really all over the place. And for each of these ideas um, that I would think could find compelling, um, and I don't actually try to see if any of these are realistic. They, they, I don't actually need anything to be realistic. It's more than imagining what life would be in, in each of these roles on a day-in basis. So what would be the pros? What would be the cons? And so typically, uh, and I have a tendency to, to write in bullet points from probably the McKinsey consultant me and still there. And so put the, the pros and cons uh, of each of these paths or actions. Um, and yeah, and, 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 
and 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 just lay it out there and just the the per, the, the, the the fact that it's been put on paper uh actually crystallizes your thinking because you usually have intuitions or impressions about what makes sense but you actually don't know for a fact and once you put it on paper it actually helps you really think through what makes sense now i never reach a conclusion in the email the email is more putting out all the options and then um a few things happen um subconsciously you you start processing the data that that you put out consciously in, in that email uh and then you i shared with people that are friends uh mentors people that i respect or not um and i asked them to 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 analyze what i wrote in two different ways one is if they were me what would they do and b if they were them what would they do um so i get their perspective not everyone is fantastic but they themselves in, in your shoes but like getting their perspective on those two points is interesting usually there's a bunch of interaction either through conversations or emails over the next few weeks and and the answer kind of comes on its own um it's never taking more than a few months for the answer to come uh, in terms of what the right answer and path is and it's something in an exercise i if i haven't done it in a while i force myself to do it and i try to do it at every major point you know point in life so i recently redid it again um for well uh, I, i'm at fj labs because we had we were starting to raise fund too and so it's like oh you know it's a good time to think through okay should i continue down the path that i'm going or are there alternative path that made more sense and so life it's very easy to be, be a runner to keep going in one direction that whatever direction you're set on based on whatever randomness took you there or societal expectations or parental expectations and not question whether or not it is the right path for you or the right path in general what it is that provides meaning to your life uh obviously it's relative need and meaning not absolute meaning is what gives you personal meaning um and i just want to make sure that i'm not you know 90 and realizing oh i've done all these things uh, that were not the right, right ones for me. And so being really deliberate and explicit about the choices I make um, by using that approach in this email works really effectively. That's great, Fabrice. And then, you know, it led you away from starting businesses towards investing in businesses. Uh, is that is that kind of how it worked? Not not really, actually. N- n- no, quite the contrary, in fact. Um, the I became an investor kind of out of... Uh, random happenstance uh by virtue of being a ceo of a consumer-facing internet company and being ceo of of several successful consumer-facing internet companies other people started asking me for advice and money and at first i gave advice ultimately i gave money and so um i i came up with these processes for investing i decided okay i because I'm a full-time CEO, I'm super busy. I don't really have time to be an investor, uh, but I do like meeting young entrepreneurs. I do like hearing their ideas. I do like supporting their their ideas and 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 helping them uh, harness the deflationary power of technology to improve the world. Um, and so I do want to be involved. Uh, and so I came. I decided, you know what? In light of how busy I am, I'm only going to invest in marketplace businesses I'm, where I know how to evaluate them. I'm going to define these heuristics. And so by 2013. Um, when I said leave OLX, I'm like, you know, I, I love being an entrepreneur and I love being an investor. And and at that point, I was already an investor in over 100 startups, not being a professional investor in any way, shape or form. And, and, and I thought I could build a team and a structure that would allow me to do both. I love being an entrepreneur and I love investing. And so I build a company that would allow me to do that. And so FJ Labs is a hybrid venture fund where we invest in 50 to 100 startups a year. Um, 
in the marketplace space, so around the world and at every stage. Uh, but we also build one or two companies a year. And, and this way, I get to scratch both itches in terms of uh, uh, thinking through and, and being on the ground floor of companies that I can build from the, from the ground up. Uh, um, of which we've done like seven or eight already. And sometimes I'm CEO, sometimes I'm executive chairman, sometimes I essentially play the acting CTO or VP product role. It really depends on what the needs of the business are. But as a result, um, it allows me to be both an investor and an entrepreneur, which which I love being. And and I think the two reinforce each other. You get you get ideas for one from the other and vice versa. And so um, my path in a way to invest to being an investor was through happenstance, but I the conclusion was not, and therefore, let's be a full-time investor, because I think um, that would be not nearly as compelling as being both an entrepreneur and an investor. Right. Best of both worlds kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think it's for everyone, because of a um, obviously split attention. Uh, sometimes it's very hard to do two things well, and it takes a lot of time. So the which is a trade-off, right? If you're doing that, it means you're not doing something else. Right. And this is the idea. Same thing for a startup. They say, do one thing very well. Focus on that. Yeah. For, for most company, for most startups, being a CEO of a startup is basically a massive prioritization exercise. Uh, in a world of limited resources, uh, which time is one, but like money is clearly another, uh, what is it that you're going to do? And, and uh, 99.99% of the case, you better do one thing extraordinarily well and better than anyone else rather than try to do too many things. Like boiling the ocean definitely doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. So now you have this investment business. You're investing in 100 companies a year. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty intense. So what's your process there? So on the, on the investment side, uh, we're in a way lucky that we get – almost 100 companies a week that come in and ask us for money. And so we're not really looking for deals. They come to us because we build this amazing network of, uh, of people that we work with who send us deals, be they other venture capital firms because they'd like our perspective and the help for the companies, be they the, we've backed, the, at this one, we've invested in four startups. So we've backed over a thousand entrepreneurs and they send us their friends, their employees, they come back for their next company. Uh, and then just because we're known as investors, we get a lot of deals. And, uh, once these deals come in, we evaluate them. Uh, a bit over half of them were out of scope, like they're in the wrong uh, geography, they're in the wrong industry, uh, it's not the things we do, and so we tell them thanks for other things. The other 40, uh, we actually have a, built a great team that basically applies the heuristics that we've defined. So we, we're both thesis-driven, we have a number of theses we events against, and a bunch of, of things we try to evaluate from a quality of team, quality of the business, and deal term perspective. Um, every week, they then present, after they've interacted with these 40, 50 companies, they present the results to my partner, Jose, and I. We, we decide whether or not um, we find their recommendation compelling. And if we like a company, we typically take a call. And on that second call, in a one-hour call, we decide whether we're an investor or not. So at most, with two one-hour calls, and in a week, we, we tell you whether we invest or not. So we're very different from most firms, because, but, but at the same time, we're not leading. We're not, we're not doing due diligence. We're not taking board seats. We're not pricing. We're just joining other people's rounds, um, which allows us to, have, to see a lot of deals, to invest in a lot of companies, and you know, frankly, do what I think is the most fun, which is like be exposed to all these extraordinary people building these extraordinary things. Uh, and then separately, we build another process for like coming up and building, uh, you know, one or two great companies every year. Right. Okay. So Fabrice, here's the last question. In 2012, there was this New York Times article written about you where it said you sold 
everything in your life. You got rid of your 20-acre New York estate. You sold your sports cars, and uh, you kept 50 items, and the idea was to get go spend more time with friends and family. Uh, will you tell us about that? Yeah, so, so actually, it actually also came on the back of the decision to leave the company that I was running. So it was like one of those transition points. And in that transition, that analysis of my personal life, I was realizing I was not loving um, the way that, that friendships evolve over time in the sense that when I was at McKinsey, I would see my friends like five to seven times a week would be remaking the world. And there was a quality and depth to the friendship that felt like it was fraying as we all got older and you know people started getting married and having kids and and people got busy and by virtue of being busy instead of seeing someone like you know your friends five times a week you see them once every other once every other month or once every three months and so when you see someone every six weeks um when you catch up, it, it becomes more of a biographical update. It's like, oh, in the last six weeks since I've last saw you, my husband did that, work was like this, my friends did that, my my kids did that. And, and it, it no longer had the dream like we're remaking the world. We're talking about like issues that matter and are important to us. Um and and so I thought if I freed up in and 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 one of those things that takes time is actually owning things. When you own things, in a way, they own you. Uh, if you have a place that you that you live at, that you own, you live there, and therefore you don't ask yourself what would maximize my utility. Like if now that I have infinite optionality, where is it that I want to spend tonight? Who is it that I want to interact with? Um, and so by by downsizing and like really giving everything away to charity and going down to these 50 items it allowed me to think through okay now that i don't have a place um who do i want to hang out with where do i want to go and so i uh, did a period of couch surfing uh my friend's couches uh, didn't work particularly well actually i think benjamin franklin once said uh, fish like uh house guests start swelling after three days and the issue is embedding my life in people's life when they actually have not made an accommodation for it doesn't work right like they still have to get up at six in the morning and bring the kids to school and go to work and come back and do homework and then at cpm they're tired and and i'm a, as you can probably tell from this a rather high energy guy and i don't need that much sleep and so m my vision for this was like oh like let's go play tennis from eight to ten and watch a movie from ten to midnight and like let's remake the world from midnight to two a.m and like it just that didn't quite work uh, though there were elements of it. But then I realized, you know, there are better ways to accomplish the same goal. Uh, so I, I kept, so instead of sleeping on their couches, I slept in hotels and Airbnbs for like four years and, and instead decided that we should all go on vacation together. Uh, but of course, within the constraints that work for them. Because if we're on vacation with our friends, when they're not at work, not not at a place where there's no school, uh, and you organize activities for the kids and or babysitters and or nannies, then you can recreate an environment where they're not overwhelmed by things they need to do, where you can actually have a more meaningful uh, conversation and, and friendship and relationship. So I've been doing that both with friends and family several weeks a year uh, for the last few years, and, it, and it's been amazing. Um, and 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 kept really the minimalist lifestyle for a very long time. I actually got an apartment again, um, but I still don't have a car. I still own less than a hundred items. It's you know people come to my apartment. They're like, "Does anyone live here?" Uh, um, <laughs> because I, it was for the longest time like a mattress on the floor, and that was it. Um, the the I, having a place. I didn't actually want to get a place, but the U.S. economy and then 
major city economies like New York, San Francisco are doing so well that everything's full all the time. All the all the top hotels are full all the time. All the nice Airbnbs are full all the time. So if I would go to Airbnb and I try to like I want to say six weeks in a place, basically be impossible. And and in 2016, so like four years in, I started seeing myself like move hotel room every every day. Every four days, I had to change hotel room, change Airbnb, and I was like, hey, that, that's ridiculous. That's creating a, a a transaction cost that didn't make sense. So I got a nice apartment in New York, um, but still you know, very minimalist and didn't get any of the other trappings. Uh, so I still don't have a watch or a car or any of those things. I don't plan to get any of these things. Um, and it allowed me to actually redo or restart hosting intellectual salons. And, and so there are actually a few benefits to it. Uh, and so I think right now I have this nice balance of having owning very few things, having a nice place where I can actually host salons and and and, and define as home, and yeah, and have these uh, several weeks of interactions in a more meaningful way with friends and family every year. Um, and so yeah, that's, that current model seems to work rather well. Right, I love it. You know, Fabrice, you have this very evolved life, and there's there's been a lot from this conversation. But if we can distill it down into I don't know, something, one or two actionable pieces of advice for young people listening to this. Uh, is there, is there, you know, any type of um, mantra or saying that, that has helped guide you through the, through all of this? The, I'm not, I'm not sure it's mantra per se, but it's, it's actually just being more deliberate, um, taking a step back, thinking through where you are, ch- putting, checking, laying out with the options without really limiting those options, really like really being creative on them and then setting a deliberate, actionable path to go after it. And I've realized, um, and I guess uh, Maybe it's it's kind of cliche, but like if you really work hard at going down a given path, you typically can get there. And the ten thousand hours of deliberate practice, you know, can make you work class almost anything. And so find the things that you really truly care about and go after them if they make sense. You know, so I would actually I had a constraint. Like I don't love people to say, oh, just follow your passion, whatever that passion may be. You know, if you may be your passion may be to be a painter, but maybe you're not a particularly good one and it's not particularly easy to be successful in that. But, uh, and, and by the way, most of those passions you can actually pursue in your extracurricular activities. I actually don't think in, in the funny thing is to succeed in, in, in business um, and to succeed in life, you actually don't need super high raw IQ. Um, grit, tenacity, passion matter more. Uh, and in terms of, and, and, and it's not necessarily even intellectual curiosity. And so you can, all your needs for intellectual curiosity can be actually fulfilled by your extracurricular activities and by your hobbies, right? Like, I don't think that what I do today requires that much curiosity or intelligence uh, because I've been doing it for, the, the world re- rewards hyper-specialization. So I've been doing the same thing for the last 20 years. I would argue that with the experience I have, I do it better, I do it well. Uh, and then I use all that free time and structure and space that I've built in order to actually fulfill the, the, those other needs. And so think through what maximizes both your, you, you know, professional potential in a way that like would fulfill you sufficiently to do well, and then add and complement what things are missing from that with the things you do in your free time. Uh, and then you can build a balanced and rich life in every way, shape or form possible. That's fantastic. Fabrice, I, I really appreciate that insight. This was a lot of fun doing this. My head's kind of spinning right now, but uh, thanks, for, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening as always, everyone. We've got lots more podcasts coming, so please stay with us. Also, let us know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes. I certainly appreciate it.